Good morning. It's good to be here this morning, and let me just say happy Mother's Day to all the moms who are here this morning. I know that sometimes Mother's Day and Father's Day can be difficult days for some, but I just want to rejoice in the fact that we have so many great moms here with us this morning. So we're thankful for all of you. I hope that you have a great day and some fun things ahead of you for today. Today's message, if you want to get into that Pew Bible, you will find today's passage on page 1072. One of the things that you're going to notice as we go forward is that we are going to be expecting you to be into the Bible and reading along with us. And uh, we will be hoping to help you find your way around by providing the page numbers to the passages that we'll be looking at. And so uh, thank you for your cooperation in that. Aren't those like the greatest Pew Bibles ever? I mean, honestly, it's almost better than mine that I have now. I, I, but I thought I had a good one. But uh, the question that I want to ask this morning, I want to ask what I would consider to be a kind of a poignant question. Have you ever lost someone or something that caused you great sorrow? A sorrow that you thought would never go away. A feeling of loss that you felt that would continue all the days of your life without end. I did recently. Many of you know that my dad passed away a couple months ago. Enough time has passed where I think I can tell this story without breaking out into tears too much, but if I do, just bear with me. We'll get through it. You know, I wouldn't say that I was extremely close to my dad, but his death really caused an extreme amount of sorrow in my soul. I'll never forget where I was and when it was when I got the news that my father had passed away. My dad had been sick for about a month. Um, the doctors were never quite certain exactly what happened to him. They thought that maybe he had had a stroke, but they weren't sure. Nothing really showed up on the MRI. And he had been living with my brother and my sister-in-law for a number of years. And so it was an extremely long Saturday when we realized that he needed to go to a hospice care facility and that his death was going to happen very, very soon. Sherry and I had been able to go see him while he was still alive, but he was in a coma at the hospice facility the Monday before he died. We were driving up to see him for possibly the last time that Friday. The hospice facility told me that the end was very soon, that he didn't have much time left. So we hurried up and got on I-25 and headed up to go, to, to go visit him. Now we were about an hour away. We were in northern Colorado Springs when my phone rang as I was driving. And it was the hospice nurse, and she told me that my dad had passed away peacefully. I was only about an hour to an hour and a half away from being able to be with him as he entered into heaven. But I didn't make it. And even though I know that that's the way it's supposed to be, still... I can't help but be sad when I think about that, that I was so close and yet so far 
to be with him when he needed me the most. But the sorrow that I feel in my heart when I think about him, and I have to tell you, I, even though it's been a couple months, as you can tell, I still feel sorrow when I think about it, is joyful when I remember that my dad was a believer. He is a believer. And he's in the joyful presence of his Savior and Lord now, not dealing with any of the pain and sorrow that he had to deal with while he was on earth. Yes, I still feel sorrow. But I also am filled with joy in knowing that I will see him again. I will see him again. And he will be healed. But while I am here waiting for that day, I have work to do. I can't allow the sorrow that I felt from his death run my life. I have to live in the joy of knowing that I will see him again and do the work that I have ahead of me. And that's what this passage that we're talking about this morning in, in John 16, 16 through 24, the story of my father is kind of a parallel to the passage that we're looking at. Matt said last week in his message that I would be speaking about sorrow that the disciples felt when Jesus told them that he was going away, that he was no longer going to be with them. But as Matt pointed out last week, Jesus wasn't going to be leaving them alone. In fact, he was going to be, it was going to be beneficial for them that he left because he was going to be able to send the Holy Spirit to live within them. And the Holy Spirit was going to bring joy. And the Holy Spirit was going to lead them into all truth. It's to their benefit that Jesus went to the cross and ascended and sat down at the right hand of his Father. And don't let me forget that he was resurrected as well. My goodness, how could I ever forget that? But the Holy Spirit came and gave them truth. So today's passage, really, when we think about all of what we've been talking about here in John 16, this is really, really part three of a four-part series. In, in the first four verses, we read kind of the introduction to this chapter that Jesus introduces us to what is going to happen here in this last chapter before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays before he goes to the cross. Jesus tells us that in those four verses that he wants us to remember what it is that he's saying to us so that when the time comes, we will not fall away. Those are very important words for us to remember all the way through this chapter. Next week, Don will speak about the conclusion of chapter 16, not to put any pressure on him, but those are Jesus' final words recorded by John to his disciples before he prays and heads to the cross. But tucked in there is today's passage. And it is a particularly important and interesting set of verses where Jesus explains a little more clearly about what was about to happen to him and what that would mean to his disciples. It really gives us a great foundation as to what we are supposed to be feeling and doing while we wait for Jesus to return to earth. And we're going to see four things this morning. One, Jesus is leaving, but he'll be back soon. And two, how the disciples took the news. 
Three, Jesus explains how they're supposed to handle their feelings. And four, how prayer is going to change with this news. Let's read this passage this morning and then we'll pray and get started. John 16, starting in verse 16, reading through verse 24. A little while and you will see me no longer, and a little while and you will see me. So some of the disciples said to one another, What is that that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while and you will see me? And because I'm going to the Father, of course they're referencing verse 10 in the previous passage there. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. As you can see, there's a lot in this passage, these short verses here. And the first part of our message is that Jesus is leaving and he's coming back. When it says in verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. In our passage last week, as we said, you know, Jesus, as the good shepherd, was telling his disciples, his sheep, that he was leaving. And that it was to their advantage that he left. And we talked about that already, that he was going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was going to convict us regarding our sin and righteousness and judgment. Jesus told his disciples that there were so many more things that he could tell them, but they weren't ready to hear it yet. So he didn't say those things. It was too much for them to bear without the power of the Holy Spirit to help them along. But as the good shepherd and like a father would do for his sons, he is preparing them to leave and for what life was going to be like without him as they were going forward. And now beginning in verse 16, Jesus is once again telling his disciples that he is leaving. He tells them yet again that he is going away, but he is going to come back very, very soon. So the obvious question then that I thought of as I was studying this passage is, what is Jesus talking about? Was Jesus talking about his impending date with the cross and then his resurrection three days later? Or was he talking about his ascension to the Father and his return to his people? And there are different viewpoints on this, on the interpretation of verse 16. One of our early church fathers, Augustine, he believes that Jesus was actually talking about his ascension and his second coming, what is known as the perusia. 
While modern scholarship leans heavily that Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. And one reason for that is what Jesus says in verses 20 through 22. And we'll be talking a little bit more about those verses in a bit. But when we especially look at verse 20, Jesus tells his disciples that when he goes away, they will lament while the world will rejoice. And that is exactly what happened at the crucifixion. We look at scripture and we can see evidence of this in the gospel accounts. So if you want to follow along, we're going to read a few verses in Matthew 27, 35 through 44, which is page 991 in your new Bible. So if you turn with me there, and let's read starting at verse 35 of chapter 27 in Matthew. And when they had crucified him, they divided, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Sorry, I lost my place there for a second. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Wow. After all the other things Jesus did, that's what's going to take for them to believe in him? <laughs> he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now let's turn over to Matthew 28, starting in verse 5, and let's see the reaction of Mary and Mary as they went to visit Jesus when they went to go see him when they found out that he had been resurrected. Starting in verse 5. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he had said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before them to Galilee. And there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and with great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings, and they came hold, They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. You see, when we see those around Jesus at the crucifixion, that they were mocking him. They were eating up the fact that he was on the cross. They had no idea what was happening here. They had no idea that Jesus was actually suffering and dying for them in spite of what they were saying and doing. And then, in contrast to that, we see the joy of Mary and Mary when they saw Jesus resurrected and the filled with joy, great joy. You see, this is what Jesus is talking about. There's going to be sorrow at the crucifixion, but then there's also going to be joy 
when he returns at the resurrection. But when we read verses 17 and 18 in our passage, we see that the disciples were confused by what Jesus was saying. Let's read those verses again. Starting in verse 17, some of his disciples said to one another, what is that that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. See, the disciples who had been with Jesus for three years didn't quite get it. They didn't understand what Jesus was saying. So if we're a little confused as to what Jesus was saying, we're in good company. But let's be fair with the disciples. The Holy Spirit had not filled them yet, and they didn't have the complete scriptures, including the New Testament, like we did although they did have the Old Testament. But the whole Bible had not been written. We have no excuses because we have the whole written word of God. We know what happened. And if we don't understand what Jesus is saying, well, then we probably should spend more time reading and studying the Bible for ourselves. But one thing that they did have, the disciples did have, was they had Jesus with them. They had Jesus with them. And he had been telling them more than once. In fact, he had told them five times now that he was going to die. And if you're keeping track in the book of John and you want to write this down, those references are starting in John 7, 33. The next one is in 12, 35. And then 13, 33. And then 14, 19. But I'll be honest, you know, when I was reading through this, and there are sometimes there's some real ironic things that are somewhat humorous in the Bible, and you have to kind of look down a little bit and really think about it. But in this case, I think this is kind of amusing, that they're sitting here talking to themselves and asking themselves the questions. When Jesus is standing right there, the Word of God is standing next to them, the Messiah, the Lord. Why did they not just ask him? Why did they not just ask him? And I asked myself as I was studying for this message, how many times have you, Scott, done the exact same thing? Where you've read and you don't understand exactly what Jesus is telling you and you try to figure it out on your own instead of going to the Lord in prayer and asking him for help by the power of the Holy Spirit. Too many times to mention here, I can say. But Jesus is right here with us. You have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and he can help us. So we don't need to rely on our own knowledge and our own strength in order to be able to figure things out, because we have the living God living in us to help us, the helper, the paraclete, the one who can open up our minds in our eyes and our hearts to hear what the Lord has for us. But I'm sure I'm the only one who's ever gone through that trial. Am I right, or are you with me? You're with me? All right. No one's asleep yet. That's good. I'm, we're, we're, we're doing well. Hang in there. It's going to get fun. But you know, the other part of this is when, when I put this message together, when I was studying it, it was, this was some, some parts of it were difficult for me. Because what Jesus is saying here, and we're about to see in the next few verses, is that 
it was very convicting to me. Like Matt talked about last week, the immense feeling of conviction in my heart over verses 19 through 21 really made me look in the mirror and examine myself and how I would react to what Jesus is about to say. I want you to know that these next few verses should convict us if we are considering ourselves to be a Christian, a Christ follower, one of his disciples. But not all of it is hard. Not all of this message is difficult. But as we'll see, with the difficulty, we'll see that in the end, there is great joy. A joy that is so great and fulfilling and all-encompassing. A joy that cannot escape us and will never end. And our third point that we're going to look at is, Jesus says, well, let me explain this again. We're going to be looking at John 16, 19 through 22. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again, a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And then he goes on to say, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. No one will take your joy from you. Jesus, of course, can see the disciples, and he can see that they're talking amongst themselves and wondering what in the world is he saying. So he speaks up, and he asks the obvious question that they are dying to ask him, but either through fear or just plain ignorance, they don't ask. What do I mean by saying in a little while you will not see me, and then in a little while you will see me? And then he expands on what he said in verse 16 by saying this in verse 20. This, and this again gives us the perception that Jesus is talking here about his crucifixion and his resurrection. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Jesus is saying that his disciples, the sorrow that they're going to feel is like weeping outwardly, mourning and grieving out loud, like we would do at a funeral for a loved one. It is a different type of grieving than what Jesus had before raising Lazarus from the dead, which for Jesus was an internal mourning, uh, a sobbing on the inside, uh, just that internal feeling of sorrow. But this sorrow will be an external weeping, an external sorrow, a lament of wailing. Now, even though you and I were not present physically at the crucifixion, I ask you, do you feel the heaviness in your heart when you read the gospel accounts of Jesus' crucifixion. The agonizing death of him on the cross and the details that the gospel writers give us. Especially knowing that 
The reason why he was there in the first place was because it was our sins that nailed him there. I do. When I read the gospel accounts, it brings tears to my eyes. But the flip side of this that Jesus is saying is that the world was rejoicing in his death. As we saw in the passage that we looked at earlier, we can see that they were laughing, they were deriding Jesus, they were mocking him, they were rejoicing in his suffering. So what are we supposed to do emotionally about those kind of feelings? Are we supposed to be hateful? Should we feel a need to get revenge for their suffering? Remember what Jesus said while hanging on the cross? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And they didn't know what they were doing. They thought, a lot of them thought they were actually protecting God from a false prophet. They didn't fully realize that they were killing the author of creation himself. God in human flesh. But what about those who are enemies of the cross today? What should we do with them? It is so easy for us to get angry, so easy for us to spew vengeful things against them. But again, that's not what Jesus said on the cross. I think we should actually feel sorrow for them and pray for their salvation. That they would open their eyes and see the errors of their ways and put their faith and trust in Christ. I believe that's what the Holy Spirit would want us to do too and what the Father would like us to do. And this statement by Jesus here in verse 20, I believe is really a takeaway for us in this passage. Let's look at it again. The first half of the verse, Jesus seems to be relating to his death and when he says that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. And we looked at that just now. And now Jesus tells his disciples that the sorrow they feel when he leaves them for his crucifixion will turn to joy when he returns and they see him after his resurrection. This is a joy, it's a gladness that will fill their heart. Like the day when I see my Father in heaven. It's going to be a, a joy that I don't even understand yet. But it's going to fill me. And seeing Jesus in his resurrected form had to be a rejoicing moment for those disciples who had watched him die on the cross. For us, we know that the resurrection has already occurred. We receive our joy from learning and remembering the victory that the resurrection gives us. Our salvation, forgiveness for our past, and a hope for the future. But how can we not be filled with the joy that Jesus is speaking of when we dwell on our salvation and what he has done for us? And like Jesus said in 16.1, that we need to remember those things to help us when life gets difficult and we don't fall away. You see, we sit in this interim term, this interim period of time where Jesus has already risen. He's already sitting at the right hand of the Father intervening for us while we await his return, the perusia. And during our wait, Jesus has given us a mission to accomplish on his behalf. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, 
as we know, is known as the Great Commission. And we talk a lot about that at Calvary. Our mission statement is based on it. We are to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Our holy Trinitarian God. And we see the Trinity in chapter 16. We see Jesus telling his disciples that he was returning to his Father. And when he does, he's going to send the Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, working in perfect unity to fulfill the mission of God for us. In Matthew 28, 20, Jesus tells his disciples that he is with them to the end of the age. And even though that Jesus has ascended to the Father, he is still present with us because of the Holy Spirit that indwells every believer in Christ. He will never leave us or forsake us, he says. And this should provide us all we need to be filled with great joy, a joy that will never fade away. But sometimes that mission that we have been given can be difficult. It can be excruciatingly hard. Jesus, in our passage in verse 21, equates this work to that of childbirth. And I, I have to say, first of all, as a man, it's difficult for me to sit here and talk with any authority about childbirth, considering that I have never born a child, nor will I. But Jesus, being the author of childbirth, he has the right to do that. And so we're going to go with that, okay? Because Jesus is the one who used it, not me, all right? But regarding Jesus' use of childbirth here, uh, theologian D.A. Carson says this, the combination of intense suffering and relieved joy at childbirth is a common illustration in the Old Testament depicting the travail of God's people that must suffer before the immense relief and joy brought about by the advent of the promised messianic salvation. So the good news here is that Jesus is using a familiar illustration that his disciples will understand to describe the anguish that they will feel when he has left them and the subsequent joy that results from his return. A joy that is so great that it removes the pain of his leaving and his crucifixion. But what does this mean for us? How do we apply this illustration in our lives? Like I mentioned a, a few moments ago, we've been given a mission to accomplish while we await Jesus' return while we walk on this earth. And again, it can be difficult, it can be hard, it can be painful. But in the end, the joy we receive will be so awesome. I asked Matt to read that passage from Acts 5 earlier to show us an example from the disciples on the pain and joy this mission of God can bring upon those that he has called into his kingdom to participate. And let's reference that passage again. And if we took time to really start there in Acts 5.17, as Matt explained, that we would see that this is a time where, where the apostles were out healing people. It, in fact, it was such an amazing time that people were even trying to get just in Peter's shadow to be healed. And the high priest, the Jewish high priest, and all of those in charge had heard enough. They had seen enough. 
and they had the apostles arrested. And they put him in a public prison to make an example of them. But an angel of the Lord released them in the night, and they went right back to preaching the gospel in the temple. Nothing was going to stop them. And once the chief priests heard the apostles were not in prison and were reaching the temple, they brought them back before the council and the high priest. And the high priest sternly reminded them, the apostles, that they were forbidden from preaching in the temple about Jesus. But Peter and the apostles said in Acts 5.29 that they must obey God rather than men. And they were not going to stop preaching the good name of Jesus Christ. They would not heed their demands. They were given a mission to fulfill, and they were going to do it. Let's pick up here in, in verse 38 of the passage that we read earlier, just to give us context as to what we're looking at. Acts 5, 38. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. And so they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Now, this is what I want you to get. Remember, they were beaten. They had been put in prison. And here's their reaction. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing. Get that. How would you feel if you were just beaten? Would you rejoice? Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And what name is that? Christ. Jesus Christ. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Again, I mean, I ask myself and I'm asking you, how would we react? How would we react? Most of us here, we don't know. We've never been faced with physical harm or prison because of our faith. I know that one of us has. But the rest of us, that as far as I know, haven't. And if I'm wrong, how did you react? How did you react? The rest of us may have been shunned or unfriended or have been isolated from family, but we have not been threatened physically or really in any way for our faith. Do you see the correlation? Do you see the correlation here with what Jesus' illustration of childbirth? That the pain of what we are called to do, sometimes the suffering that we are called to do, brings us great joy. It's almost like an oxymoron, isn't it? But it's the truth. And I have to say that the days in this country appear to be heading toward a time in the not too distant future where we may be faced with this time of persecution for our faith. We may be forced to suffer physically for our faith. And as shepherds in this church, we are preparing you for that day. 
not by our strength, but by the word of the Lord himself. We really need to remember these words of Christ so that we won't fall away when the time comes. We need to be ready. We need to be prepared. And that is what Jesus is preparing us for. It is hard for me to believe that this good news of our holy God, our Father in heaven, who out of his immense love for us, created us in his image for a holy purpose that he gave us. That even though that we stained this perfect plan of his with our own sin, our own pride and disobedience, that he provided us a way to be reconciled to him by sending his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to take all of our sins upon himself and hang on that cross and die in such agony. The innocent taking the punishment of the guilty, that should have been us, but it was him by his grace and his grace alone. And it's through Jesus' death that we receive forgiveness for our sins and can receive the opportunity to live eternally with him in the paradise God originally designed. And really, all we have to do, all we have to do is recognize that we are sinners, that we need a Savior, and surrender our lives to him and allow him to be Lord instead of us being our own Lord. We do that all the time, don't we? Make ourselves Lord. And let us be clear, Jesus Christ is Lord. And hopefully, hopefully you've done that and received the forgiveness of sins and you've received your salvation and your promise of eternal life with him. But if you haven't this morning, then I ask that you see me or Matt or Don or anyone else here who loves Jesus after church and we will help you find your way to him. I cannot tell you any more strongly how important it is that you not walk out of here this morning and not know where you stand with our Savior. You must know. So I ask, how did this message of hope, this beautiful message that God has given us, become the enemy of society? I don't understand how any can anyone would even want to reject this great offer of the Lord. I know there was a time in my own life when I did it, but now that I'm on the other side, it seems hard for me to believe that anyone would reject that. And as we continue to perform our mission to bring the good news to our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our families, and our world, let's remember that the joy, our joy, can never be taken away from us if we are in Christ. And I wanted to share with you some verses this morning that are helpful, I believe, to in this time of trouble that may be coming forward. And even any suffering that you may be going through now. Starting with James 1, 2 through 3, James tells us, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Testing produces perseverance. Like the apostles in Acts 5, we should consider it pure joy to suffer for the name of Christ. 
Romans 12, 12 says, Be joyful in hope, patience in affliction, faithful in prayer. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then in 1 Peter 4, 12-13 says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Rejoicing in the suffering, because when we see Jesus in his glory, we will be overjoyed. The reward is worth the price of suffering. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seating at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, our example, took our sins on the cross, and through the suffering, he endured to the end game, and he suffered in joy. And there are so many other verses that we can look at, but time prevents us from doing so this morning. But I hope you get the idea of what all this pain and suffering that we may be called upon by the Lord in His name for His mission that we might be called to participate in, there comes a joy that can never be taken away. A joy that allows us to look ahead to the day we see Jesus return. And as Jesus tells us, well, as John, excuse me, tells us in John 3, 2, Jesus through John, let me be clear on that, starting in verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But get this, get this. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. My goodness, what a great promise that is for us to look forward to. That should cause us great joy in our heart because one day we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. As we look at the last two verses in our passage, some of you may be excited to know that we're on the last two verses now, but I want you to know that these last two verses are powerful verses. Jesus is telling his disciples that prayer is going to change for them and for us too. Now let's look and read these verses again. In that day, starting in verse 23 through 24, in that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. During that time that Jesus walked on the earth, the disciples could just ask him anything because he was right there with them. And now, Jesus is telling them that when he leaves, that he, they are going to be able to pray directly to the Father. That there is no need to go through a mediator to pray. That we, along with the disciples, 
can go straight to the Father and bring our requests to him. And it's by the powerful name of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, that the Father will hear your prayers. And as we have seen over the last several weeks, we bow before the Lord, and he will, he will hear our requests, and he will answer them. But the confidence that we have of going to the throne of God directly brings about that fullness of joy in our hearts that Jesus promises us in verse 23. But what allows us to be able to go to the throne of grace? It is only because of the work that Jesus did on the cross that we talked about. His crucifixion tore the curtain to the Holy of Holies and allowed us to be able to enter in and talk to the Father directly in the name of His Son. And that gives us great joy. Jesus gives us great joy. And if you're not experiencing joy in your life right now, if life has become so unbearable and you're not sure how to endure it, let me encourage you today and say, in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, in the filling of the Holy Spirit, you can endure it. And you can endure it with great joy. Let me encourage you. Let me tell you that it is not by your power or strength, but only in the strength that Jesus sends us in the power and strength of the Holy Spirit. Joy is yours if you surrender your life to him and let him guide you all the days of your life. There is no doubt life is hard, and it can be as painful as childbirth without an epidural. But Jesus endures where you are at. He endured the pain on the cross. He endured the endless insults cast upon him, the physical abuse he faced. He endured it because he knew at the end there was a joy greater than anything that we could imagine. And that is what he wanted to leave his disciples and us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just... Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the joy that we get in knowing that we will see you, Lord. We get great joy from the fact that we know that you were raised from the dead. We get great joy, Lord, when we actually fulfill your mission that you have given us. Lord, I pray this morning that if there are those here that are not feeling joy, from circumstances that are in their lives now, Lord, I pray that you, by the power of your Spirit, would fill them and allow them to find peace and joy in you, that their lives would be changed forever. I praise you and I thank you, Jesus, and ask for your blessing upon your word this morning. In your name, amen.